This is episode 18. You're listening to the All Hazards Podcast, where we take you behind the scenes to give you exclusive access to emergency managers who've been on the front lines of some of the nation's most difficult challenges. Where we have candid conversations about the challenges facing all emergency managers, no matter how big or small the community. Here's your host, Sean Boyd. Welcome. With today's guest, we focus on law enforcement in the emergency management realm. Our guest will talk about his professional life, including and beyond the four core programs within Cal OES, which are statewide SAR, law enforcement mutual aid, state threat assessment system, and state mass fatality. He'll also talk about the importance of citizen volunteers. And we'll talk about the risk of becoming too operational. It can happen. We're going to talk about it and a whole lot more right now. All right. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We are here at the broadcast studios at Cal OES headquarters here in uh, Rancho Cordova. I'm sitting here with law enforcement chief Paul Tassoni. Paul, thank you for being here. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> thanks for uh, thanks for coming in. Uh, I know we've been trying to sit you down for a while, and uh, we're both very busy. And finally, we uh, we got you in here. But uh, I appreciate you taking the time. Tell me a little bit about your role right now. What is your title, and uh, how does it fit in with the big scheme of things here? Okay, currently I'm a deputy chief with the, the Cal OES law enforcement uh, branch. So. In my current capacity as deputy chief, I'm in charge of the administrative section of the branch. So I run all the financials, special projects, contracts, grant administration, things of that nature, personnel. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but overarching responsibilities include those of our four main core programs, those being the statewide search and rescue program, the law enforcement mutual aid program, the state threat assessment system, and then the mass fatality program for uh, California. Okay. For those who are just sort of tuning in for the first time, then um, your role in terms of state law enforcement has a has a big overarching kind of umbrella of responsibilities, and it basically comes down to a homeland security kind of function, or, or am I over-interpreting it? I think that is a good part of our roles and responsibilities to identify information and help share information uh, in the homeland security arena. But again, our responsibilities ex- extend into those other three programs mm-hmm. I previously mentioned. And our our role is not traditional in that we're now out on the streets enforcing, uh, you know, the laws uh, like a patrol officer would. Uh, we are coordinators and our positions are that we will coordinate people and resources for uh, local, regional, or statewide emergencies and getting the appropriate amount of law personnel, law enforcement personnel and equipment uh, at those emergencies. Okay, so I would imagine that uh, when you uh, came to Cal OES that it wasn't uh, part of the original plan. Everybody, you know, usually has a long story before they get to uh, coming to Cal OES. Where did your career begin? So actually, uh, my my public service career started when I w- uh, entered the uh, United States Air Force out of high school. And I went to medical training uh, hmm. in the Air Force. And that kind of gave me a, 
uh, perspective of wanting to continue that in the civilian capacity in some type of public service. And when I initially uh, completed my tour in the Air Force, uh, I started working as a EMT2 or quasi-paramedic at that time. And is, was that kind of what you were doing when you did your first tour? It was a one tour, a four-year hitch? I did a four-year uh, tour in the in the Air Force. I also did a tour in the uh, the Air National Guard okay. as a medic. And um, while I was, when I finished my full-time tour with the Air Force, I, I got out of the military and started going to school and uh, continued my EMT uh, career in Sacramento working for a local ambulance service. And uh, as I was pursuing college, got into law enforcement uh, uh, training and uh, ultimately ended up working with the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department. Mm. And, and this was an about what time then? This was, uh, gosh, I have to go back that far. <laughs> uh, I went to the uh, Sheriff's Academy uh, in 1982. Okay. Uh, so I'm going on my 34th year of law enforcement. Wow, congratulations. Uh, so I started back then, uh, put myself through a training academy, uh, became a reserve uh, deputy sheriff while continuing to work for the ambulance service. And um, once I went full-time with the sheriff's department, uh, you know, I did my normal rotations in patrol uh, and corrections. Uh, and as I promoted throughout the department, um, had various assignments, but in my advanced career with the Sheriff's Department, um, I was a lieutenant and I was put in charge of the Volunteer Services Bureau, which also housed the search and rescue program uh, for the county and the uh, dive team, dive accident rescue team. Mm. And also I was in charge of working with county OES and other agencies in creating community-based exercises for large-scale emergencies. And those included active shooter training exercises, response uh, to those mm -hmm. types of situations, uh, to large-scale uh, disasters. We had a simulated stage collapse in a, a concert arena. Oh. Uh, we did some other large-scale public exercises. And that's where I really started getting integrated in emergency management and working with multi-agencies, public health, um, Caltrans, um, uh, you name it. I mean, just so many, too, too many to name really. And just started networking with uh, many of those agencies to get these exercises completed and including recruiting community members to participate in those exercises. In many of those exercises, we recruited citizen volunteers to be our role players. And we had professional moulage teams that would come in and make them up as victims hmm. yeah. so that we would create a real sense uh, and high stress yeah. in these large scale exercises. So because you were getting involved in all these sort of different areas with different agencies, was there something about that that uh, attracted you then uh, that you thought was was really great or what grabbed you there because you obviously continued down that path yeah I think there were many things really I think one I'm an adrenaline junkie uh -huh. so I like the adrenaline and the action involved in putting those exercises together uh -huh. I think what was really the personal satisfaction was working with the people mm. uh, the agency networking with the agencies determining what needs were trying to figure out 
how we could make this a good exercise, make it realistic, and make it a benefit rather than just doing something to check the boxes. Right. And uh, that became, it came difficult at times, but it was very rewarding when we had the final result. Mm -hmm. Because then you can identify really where your weaknesses are, uh, what your strengths are, and then start making some corrective actions. And that, I, in a sense, really enjoyed that challenge. Yeah. Well, and you got more out of it, like you said. I mean, the, it's kind of like life. The more you put into it, the more you get out. This was, like you said, I mean, you could have easily just have kind of gone through the motions, but you obviously took the time and energy to make it more substantial, and you got more out of it, which, of course, benefited you and everyone else in the long run. Yeah, and it, to be honest with you, none of those exercises would have come off as well as they did uh, if we didn't have our citizen volunteers. Mm. Mm. They added an element. They also added some honest critique, mm. uh, and they weren't bashful in you know presenting their idea. What was one of the critiques that you remember? Well, I mean, when you're bringing a lot of people together um, and you're planning, you're, you're thinking operational, yeah. and sometimes you don't think about creature comforts. Mm. But when you put some emphasis on taking care of people with those creature comforts, right, providing food, providing rest periods, providing, um, you know, some recognition, then that only makes those personal interactions grow. Mm. And I think initially, when I first started this business, I think one of the biggest mistakes I got, I guess I got too operational, too tactical. I didn't get, I, did, I wasn't thinking about long-term on keeping those citizen volunteers engaged. And as I grew through this process, I learned how really important they were to make it work, mm. to give us a sense of realism, uh, and was rewarded tenfold for taking care of the small things. That's, that's one of the big benefits. Perfect. Yeah. No, that's great. I think a lot of people, maybe just like you early on, would have uh, overlooked that uh, and the importance of that. And, and, you know, sometimes we take volunteers for granted in that, well, we'll always find a volunteer. But if you take care of those little things, they'll keep coming back asking for mm -hmm. more. And you don't have to work as hard. You don't because they've learned. They've been through the process. You don't have to train them as hard, right? Exactly. Huh. Exactly. And it was very rewarding because we had some, I had the opportunity to meet many, many great people. Some of them are close friends now. Uh, and had I not gone through those experiences, maybe wouldn't have met them. Mm. And so it's been much more rewarding in that way, too, on a personal level. That's great. So when did you come to OES? I came to OES in 2011. Okay. And um, I was actually doing some uh, private consulting at the time. And uh, through my years of networking with OES, I became aware of a vacancy in the law enforcement branch. I subsequently applied for it, competed for it, and here I am five years later, mm -hmm. almost to the date. Wow. Oh, so, good. Yeah, I started in September 1, 2011. Oh, man. And so we're now just over my five-year anniversary. And it's it's been very rewarding. Well, that's good to hear. You know, really, when you look back at what you have done over the last five years, they have there have been a lot of events that Cal OES has managed, disasters, different things, anything from San Bruno to Rimfire to you name it. Which one of those right now kind of stands out in your mind as being one of the more challenging events? Well, you're right. There are actually many, many. 
events that we've been in during that five-year term. Um, and I would say that the biggest one, only because of duration, was the Rim Fire. Ah. Uh, obviously, been involved in many, many uh, different disasters, uh, both on the emergency management, like fires, large fires, mm-hmm. but also on the law enforcement side with large-scale manhunts and the, okay. and the things that are required in those kinds of situations. But the longest duration would probably be the rim fire because it lasted so long. How long did it last? Do you remember? Uh, Roughly? It was multiple weeks. Okay. Yeah. Uh, multiple weeks. I know I was deployed individually for 14 days, mm. and we were working pretty much 18, 20 hour days, uh, for that time period. Exhausting. And I, and I know that I was replaced at least once. Okay. And the person that replaced me was replaced. So there were several weeks that these things are ongoing, require 24 hour operations. And like I said, we work long hours and there were many challenges. So, uh, those f- listeners who may not really fully understand how law enforcement gets involved with, uh, let's say, a big fire like the Rim Fire. What was your responsibility? And in terms of not only you, but law enforcement in general, what was your role? So our role is to support the local agency and whatever their law enforcement needs are. And in a fire this large, there were, of course, thousands of people that were evacuated. So not only do we help the local agency Uh, plan and conduct those evacuations. We also uh, supply them with law enforcement resources to do the protection after we have to evacuate people. We have to protect that area from those who may want to take advantage of those people being gone or evacuated. Mm -hmm. Um, So obviously a local agency is going to run out of resources very, very quickly, especially in a 24-hour operation. Our job is to sustain that, is sustain their ability to keep patrol because you still have the normal things going on mm-hmm. uh, in that area in, in regards to law enforcement. So you have to continue to address law enforcement issues. Um, we, we work quite well with the California Highway Patrol in providing um, fixed um, traffic locations uh, and uh, road restriction areas. CHP helps us staff those so that we can keep people out of dangerous areas. And again, uh, that also adds to protecting the community, the homes that are left behind vacant. Mm -hmm. Uh, So those things continue to be a problem. Now, a lot of times you'll go into these areas and uh, especially if you're from out of town, you may not know the area very well. How do you cope with that? Well, we again, and this this goes to where you know our primary job before the the incident happened is to network and understand the law enforcement community in that area and know who the players are and the decision makers are, and do all the pre planning. Once we do that uh, and establish those relationships, we're talking about what we can do, how we can deploy resources. We have to identify what their needs are. For example. If a particular department works on eight-hour shifts, uh, what we will need to do is match that with personnel from outside law enforcement agencies because the the local folks are going to know that the area, right? And folks coming in will be paired up with the local jurisdiction so that they won't be in a position where they might get lost, and especially right. when there's lots of smoke and debris, uh, and it becomes very confusing with 
um, especially in the rimfire, you couldn't see five feet in front of you. You can't rely on a uh, phone GPS either no. because a lot of these areas are mountainous and you're not going to get the signal that you might need. You can't rely on that. Well, and to your point, during the rimfire, we lost satellite communication capabilities. Mm. We lost internet capabilities. So none of those resources would have worked. And so it came down to, you know, uh, feet on the ground, knowing the area mm. and making sure that we didn't put people in a position where they, you know, in that area, in that remote area, there's multiple forest roads that you could actually get lost in if you didn't know the area. And in this particular case, it was surrounded by fire. So you could put potentially put those law enforcement resources in harm's way if we couldn't pair them up. So traditionally, you try to match that up with the local law enforcement agency. In Tuolumne County, they worked 12-hour shifts. And they, of course, they didn't have enough personnel to split up into eight-hour shifts. So we had to find a way to make that work. And we went, instead of a traditional eight-hour shift, we went to 12-hour shifts. And so, you know, you staff accordingly um, so you can provide 24-hour operation. You're not out there alone. I mean, in terms of your decision-making, you've got people back at, uh, you know, the Unified Command or you've got people um, at the SOC here at Callaway, wherever it may be, uh, basically establishing a plan and here's how we're going to do it. How do you match that up if, let's say, the locals whom we're supporting, they do things differently? How do you handle that? Well, I have a lot of open communication, and that's the key is, is being able to explain to my bosses you know, we can't do it this way because the sheriff can only provide the personnel to sustain a 12-hour shift. We don't have housing available. We can't feed that many people, so we can't bring them in on eight-hour shifts because we'll be feeding more people. You know, we have the challenge of meeting what the sheriff can provide in that local jurisdiction as far as personnel and how we can fulfill their wishes. And then also I have to report to my superiors mm -hmm. And what they're seeing is done differently, explain why we're doing that. And sometimes that's a challenge, but the key to meeting that challenge is communication. And hopefully I do a good job explaining while I'm deviating from what we would do normally. And the bottom line is, in my position in coordinating with that local jurisdiction, I work for that local jurisdiction. Mm. I'm a support role. And so... You know, I really pay attention to what they need, what their wishes are, and you know, I'm working for that sheriff, let's say, and I have to do the best that I can do to pass that on to the superiors who may be thinking that I'm making decisions out of left field. Mm. So yeah. if I do a poor job, they think, oh, what's he doing? Right. Um, but if I do a good job in relaying why we're doing it this way, then you know it's met with little resistance key is communication absolutely period, right absolutely so i know uh I, I haven't been out on as many disasters as you have uh but on those that i have been out on i've seen you know the firefighters working 12 on 12 off or maybe even longer depending on the operational period and uh i see this little city of tents set up uh, sometimes, depending on the, the severity of the fire, I may see um, portables that have been brought in for them to sleep in. I don't see a lot of law enforcement tents set up. What is it that you guys do? I would imagine you're, you're out there, as, you know, depending on the operational period, you're out there for as long as the firefighters are. You may not be in the smoke as long as they are, but 
you guys put in some long hours too. Absolutely, and that's uh, why unified command comes in uh, being in very important because then we can work with the fire decision makers and when they're ordering up these resources like portable showers and portable sleepers, um, they take into consideration that we have not only 4,000 firefighters coming in, as in the Tuolumne County Fire, but we have several hundred officers coming from all around the state on a daily basis, and we need to provide them with those creature comforts mm -hmm. because they need to sleep, they need to eat, they need to shower, and get ready for the, the next rotation. Um, there were many times during the rim fire, you know, even with them bringing in sleepers and building tent cities, it just wasn't enough space. We had officers sleeping in horse trailers. Horse trailers. Horse trailers. We had sleep people sleeping on the ground because they had to get rest. No sleeping bags, just on the ground the way just. Well, it was okay, sleeping so had, bags. Right. Okay. Yeah, but either bags. way. We, uh, in one instance, we had a community center opened and we put cots up. And the officers slept on cots in a community center or a school gymnasium. So you take advantage of those resources that are available to you. But I will tell you that <laughs> hotel rooms and motel rooms were a very scarce resource in Tuolumne County. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you had very many law enforcement folks staying in those facilities. They were all outside or in a community center, or a gymnasium, or in a horse trailer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Have you had to sleep in a horse trailer? I, I did one night. Oh, you did? How yes. did that go? Um, Did you call your wife and say, come on over? Uh, we've <laughs> I, got some great accommodations. <laughs> I, I would say that it was very small yeah. uh, space, okay. uh, but at least it was rest. Yeah. I will say that I did get about four hours sleep. Mm -hmm. uh, the next night, we were actually able to sleep in a vacated fire station. Oh, okay. So they opened it up to us and let us sleep in the dorm. Um, so you just throw your sleeping bag on top of a bunk. There you go. Yeah. There you go. If you had to say, you know, if there was one thing that you're particularly um, happy with uh, a success in one of these uh, previous disasters, um, is there one that stands out in your mind as being, yeah, we did this right and I want to pass this on because I learned a lot from it? Yeah, and I know this might sound like a cliche, but again, I'm going to go back to people. Okay. Uh, because we can't accomplish anything unless we build good relationships in this business. And it's that face-to-face -face time that you have before an incident happens that becomes very very important during the incident mm -hmm. and so it's the people that you meet along the way that make this journey one very interesting but also very relative and very rewarding um, and absent that I mean you could have all the material stuff all the equipment and all that stuff but if you don't know how to work with people that's really not going to solve your problem right. and so people and communication become the number one and two priorities in not only planning for the disaster, responding to the disaster, but then mitigating future-like disasters. Mm. Um, and so it's, it's really the, the great challenge is people. Mm. The great reward is people. Okay. And when you're done at the end of the day and you see the impact that you had on helping a community recover, that's what keeps me in this business. Absolutely on that. Yeah, for sure. Um, do they teach communication, these kinds of communication skills? Uh, do you train for that in any way, or do you see a need to improve that in any way? <laughs> you know, I've, I've been doing this business for 34 years. Okay. And communication is always your number one issue 
in a real incident okay. or an exercise. And it's something that we always have to work on, mm-hmm. that we're always going to have to work towards uh, getting better. Verbal communication, radio communication, media communication, it all is always work in progress. I don't, I think we try to learn from our past mistakes, but every new disaster presents its own set of communication issues. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, I've, I've been part of some huge, you know, 35, 45 agency uh, participating type exercises. Um, and the one thing that you get on your evaluation is communication. I've been on exercises that involve half a dozen people. The same thing, evaluations point out communications. So it's something that we continually have to work on. Absolutely. I mean, from the simplest uh, thing, whether it be, you know, communicating between you and uh, a colleague is really not a whole lot different from you and 10, 12, 100 other people. Communication has to be effective. And I think if you look at any of our recent examples, uh, I will I will say another huge coordinating effort was the the recent visits with our presidential candidates oh. and the behind the thing the behind the scenes things that had to occur to make those events safe for everybody the participants as well as the public communication was a key issue multi agency both at the local both at the local at the state the fed level. It all had to it had to work and it had to come together very very quickly because uh, some of those things come with very very short notice so you don't have the luxury of planning you have to again rely on those relationships um, that you've established with those agencies prior to the event to help make it through and to make it less cumbersome mm. and hopefully less mistakes there you go. because the bottom line if we take too many or make too many mistakes People are in jeopardy, and we can't afford that. Do you have any mulligans you'd like to take? Oh, I think over my 34-year career, I've had plenty of mulligans. Yeah. Uh, you know, you the, learn from you learn from them, you, right? You learn from them, and you try not to make them again. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are plenty of decisions that you can look back at and say, if I'd have done differently, maybe I would have one. Maybe I would have had somebody there to help me review the decision. Mm. Um, instead of trying to do it on my own um, and save a resource, maybe that's not the best tactic. Maybe have an additional eyes and ears while you're making those decisions to make sure it's properly vetted out. When you are involved heavily in a crisis, whatever that crisis may be, what helps you? What helps you get through that crisis, either personally or professionally, mentally, physically? You know, In a crisis, what helps you get through it? Well, just having perseverance, mm-hmm. um, understanding from the get-go that something very simple could turn catastrophic in very short time frame and being able to be flexible. I think the biggest thing in this business, aside from communications, is having flexibility. Nothing is ever black and white. You have to be able to adapt to the particular incident or circumstances and sometimes on the fly make very, very quick decisions, and you have to live with those decisions. Um, And, you know, there'll be plenty of Monday night quarterbacks to be able to go over the mistakes that were made, 
but the biggest thing is being flexible and being uh, have the ability again to work with people to get through those conflicts or difficulties um, long hours um, being able to take care of yourself because if you can't take care of yourself and you're putting in long hours you're you're providing a risk for everybody else there and so being able to recognize that is a huge huge issue recognize when you're overtaxed and being able to ask for help and not being afraid to ask for help because it might make you look weak or weak Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. exactly Hmm. did anyone ever give you some advice that you you actually took oh yeah i mean i wouldn't have made it this far in my career without getting great support and help i've had many many great mentors along the way I look towards my colleagues in the law enforcement branch here, uh, look to learn from things that they've experienced, what they've gone through, having the ability to talk with them and see some of the pitfalls you know, that may have been around before I was and try and learn from that. So again, people skills, trying to learn from other people's mistakes so I don't make the same one, being able to recognize that I don't know it all uh, and that I need help. Uh, and being able to accept that help without um, hesitation um, are very important. What about technology? You and I are close to the same age. I mean, I I love technology. How about you? It's a challenge. Yeah? It, it's a challenge, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a necessity. Yeah. We use it a lot in our business here. I mean, we use GPS, satellite phone, uh, obviously Internet. Mm-hmm. We use web-based programs. We use... Uh, other computer-based programs. Is there anything that you have a favorite? Anything that you rely on more than, let's say, the others or that you really go to, whether it's on your phone or, you know, in your laptop or your iPad? You know, with the search and rescue program taking up probably 60% of our time, what's really kind of cool is to see how advanced mapping software Mm. um, has become and what we have the ability to do on the web with mapping systems um, and having the ability to place assets on a map so you can give planners a full brief of what is occurring where those assets are placed we have the ability to track on the ground resources by putting trackers in those teams oh wow yeah you know satellite tracking Mm -hmm. devices place them in a backpack you know they're unobtrusive but you still have the ability, and this becomes very important in wilderness search and rescue, which is a big part of what we do, having the ability to track those folks as their real time. Um, and uh, what's interesting for me is in my capacity, I've been able to fly in helicopters that have the technology to monitor those trackers, and we're feeding those, track, uh, those tracks to the command post. Not only do I get to visually see what's happening on the ground, but I'm able to, with the technology, be able to push it to the command post so they see what's going on real time. We have real time video, the GPS tracking. Uh, it's quite amazing. Mm-hmm. And uh, in some of the exercises that we done have done, it's just been amazing what kind of decisions can be made when you can feed that information from the field directly to the command post um, and have resources standing by so when you make the request, okay, we're ready for an extraction. We need a medical extraction, and we need this type of helicopter. And having the ability to get it uh, very, very quickly, um, 
based on the use of that technology and be able to tell that helicopter, you go to these coordinates, you're going to see this. This is where your LZ, mm -hmm. they plug it into their instrumentation in the helicopter and they fly right to it. Amazing. And it speeds up the, the extraction of that injured party. Um, Increasing the likelihood of saving someone's life possibly. Exactly tremendously. Mm -hmm. We also have the ability to use that same technology so that if we have to insert teams, uh, we have, you know, the capacity to use the National Guard uh, that have helicopters that, that can load and transport search and rescue personnel to remote locations that would otherwise take days on foot mm -hmm. and be able to give GPS coordinates. This is where your LZ is. This is where we need you to drop these people. Um, and do that with multiple teams is is actually quite amazing as well. So just the advances in the last few years have been tremendous. Cool, cool. Any uh, any funny stories that you want to convey? Anything? Uh... I'm not sure on the radio, but <laughs> no, no, lot, lots of funny stories. I mean, you know, I I think uh, in some of the fire camps that we've been in, you know, everybody's been working really hard, and one of the things that you take advantage of is being able to be a little bit lighthearted, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, with the people that you're working with. Uh, those, those have been a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, specific stories I don't really have, uh, but I just remember, you know, you relax and you have a good time and you joke around with people and uh, maybe there's a prank or two, mm -hmm. nothing real serious, you know. Were um, you a prankster or were you the one who was always getting pranked? Uh, probably a mixture of both. Uh -huh, yeah. I probably learned to become a prankster because I was pranked so much. <laughs> 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 but, but, you know, nothing yeah. real serious, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, you got to have you got to have a sense of humor. Um, I was in the news business, and I saw a lot of what fire and police had gone through. Um, I established good relationships with some of those folks, and I got to see things that uh, nowadays I kind of wish I hadn't seen. Um, but that sense of humor helps you get through some of those really tougher times. Um, because, I mean, it can be overbearing and over. it can be very weighty if you don't have a sense of humor. Yeah, you won't stay in this business very long unless you can develop a sense of humor because it will eat you alive. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you um, some of the little things that we did that were lighthearted, you know, recharged us in a sense that we had innocent fun, it wasn't gonna hurt anybody, but at the same time it relieved all that stress, relieved all that pressure. You recharge your batteries and you go back to work. There you go, so uh, the best advice from Paul Tassoni is take that stick out. <laughs> Have fun. <laughs> Have fun. Have fun. Have fun. Is there anything else you'd like to uh, tell us before we wrap this up? Anything that stands out? Anything that you want to say? You know, I continue to have fun. Uh, I'm here because uh, I want to be able to make a, a difference uh, in the community. Uh, I think that's what all emergency managers are looking for is that they're making a difference. Mm -hmm. I see that difference on a day-to-day -day basis um, from the simple things, and that's what keeps you going. Paul Tassoni, thanks for stopping by and chatting with us. Oh, Appreciate you're welcome. it. Thank you. We'll see you on the radio. <laughs> he couldn't help but laugh and smile big, and trust me, he did. When I asked him about ongoing communication training, he said, it's always a work in progress. Of course, communications is an area that shouldn't be undervalued or ignored in any training curriculum at any agency, whether it's in leadership, interpersonal, or just simply making sure you say what you mean, it's all important. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll talk to you next time, right here at any time, if you subscribe. Thanks a lot, everybody, and stay safe. You've been listening to the Cal OES All Hazards Podcast. Don't forget to check out our podcast page where you can find past episodes along with show notes and links. And give us a social shout out. Tell others about us on Twitter and Facebook. And let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you.